Northern New York Community Podcasts, stories from the heart of our community. Hello there, and welcome to another edition of the Northern New York Community Podcast. It's great to have you here. I'm your host, Max Del Signor. Acts of philanthropy have brought Thomas J. Yowsey many places, to the church, into schools, within a multitude of nonprofit organizations, and even soccer fields. Throughout his life, his definition of giving back has been to make someone feel awesome. As a Lewis County native and longtime resident, he has achieved that and much more. Tom will share his journey in civic service and community philanthropy, which ranges from life experiences as the mayor of Lowville to finding a recent calling and becoming a deacon. But before we open our conversation with Tom, let's take a moment to thank our supporters of the podcast, WPBS and the Northern New York Community Foundation. They are responsible for the creation and production of these great stories from the heart of our community. Head over to www.wpbstv.org to see the latest from WPBS and www.nnycf.org to learn more about the Community Foundation's recent work. And now, a conversation with Tom Yowsey. Tom, it's great to have you here. Glad to be here. For a time in your life, you have been a teacher, mayor, administrator, mentor, volunteer, deacon, and I know I'm missing some others, but you check all of these boxes. What experience of those mentioned has added the most to your life? Oh, each dimension has, really. My life has been built from the many activities that I've been involved in. And I, I guess I couldn't pick out one that, that has helped me define who I am. There have been many at various stages of that life. To start with your parents um, and where you grew up in Beaver Falls, correct? I grew up in Lowville. Um, your father, you had an interesting story uh, before we just started the podcast too about your father really taking on some added responsibility as a young man, a teenager really. Could you tell us a little bit about his story? Uh, when my dad was 14 years old, I think he was in the eighth grade at Beaver River Central School at the time. Uh, his father drowned in the Beaver River while he was fishing. Uh, and the family had to reorganize. Uh, and my grandmother took a job as a cook uh, for the, in the logging camps outside of Belfort in the Adirondacks. And my, son, my father quit school because she wasn't able to earn enough money to support this, my, my father's six younger siblings. And so he went to work as a hunting guide and fisherman, fishing guide at the age of 14. When you hear those stories about your father and having that level of responsibility at a young age, um, what were those conversations like? Or how often did you talk about that with your dad? Uh, usually we were out in the boat fishing mm -hmm. when I was probably 10, 11, 12, and we happened often to be fishing on Mud Pond, which was right next to my great-grandfather's, no, it was a great-uncle's hotel. And he worked for my great-uncle as a guide. So he did a lot of guiding on Mud Pond and around Mud Pond. Mm -hmm. So he'd start talking about the wealthy people who came up to Lewis County from Philadelphia, Boston, Cleveland, New York, Utica, Syracuse. And he'd take, take them out every day uh, for a different fishing experience or a different hunting experience depending on the season. And he had great stories. <laughs> <laughs> and you were raised as a Mennonite, correct? Uh, I, I became a Mennonite late, as a part of my childhood, yes. What were some of the, the core values that you learned from your parents and as you got to that point, um, the religion as well that were important to you? Well, I think uh, 
the Mennonite community is unique, uh, and I became fascinated by it. I actually, actually, my parents were Methodist, but my family, the Yowsies, have a Mennonite heritage. And when I was nine years old, my father's best friend, a man by the name of Nick Gingrich, who owned a local appliance dealership, that's a whole other story, uh, suggested to my mother and father that I should at least experience my Mennonite background, and he offered to take me to summer Bible school for two weeks at the Laval Mennonite Church, where he was going to be the fourth grade teacher. So it was like I was going with Nick. And I really wanted to go because at the time, the Laval Mennonite Church had a softball field. <laughs> and, and, and of course, the boys that were going to be in the class I knew from school, and uh, we were going to have a great time playing softball, I thought. Uh, it ended up being more than softball, and I developed, um, I guess, I can't, I, in, today, in my modern, my language today as a deacon in the Catholic Church, I could, I could describe it now in terms of my faith, but at the time it was just a community of people that I loved being with, uh, even though my parents weren't there. And so then I continued to go to church with Nick very frequently, more than I went to the Methodist Church even. Um, until I graduated from high school. There's a phrase that's used in the Mennonite community. They talk about Mennonite insurance, or they did then, I'm not sure if they do anymore. And Mennonite insurance just meant you take care of your own. I, went, I, I participated in three or four barn raisings. Uh, there was always something going on helping somebody else because they needed it. And even as a kid without his parents in the church going with Nick. Nick was kind of like my father in the church. Um, I was involved in all that. Everybody was involved. It wasn't just softball. Right. <laughs> Did it have any bearing that experience on your decision to pursue education as a potential career? I, I love school. Um, everything about school. I love playing football. I love, I actually was did a lot of performing as a musician. I was in a lot of musicals. I even liked classes. <laughs> I remember Latin was my favorite high school course. Uh, and I admired many teachers. Uh, I had one favorite teacher, of course, like everyone else. And I think by the time I was in 10th grade, I was going to be a teacher. I always thought I was going to be a music teacher. Uh, but that changed as soon as I got to Crane. What was the college experience like as, as you began to kind of explore where your fit was in education? Well, um, I guess in college you explore more than education. <laughs> <laughs> I, as an undergraduate, I think uh, I, li I really like I liked my education, but it was the other things that I became engaged in that, that really engaged me and started to shape me in, in different ways. Um, probably the two biggest things I was involved in in college was my fraternity, but in a unique way when you think of fraternity. Uh, was it, I was at SUNY Potsdam, uh, <clears throat> and when you think of homecoming, for most colleges you think of the big football game. At SUNY Potsdam, the only musical comedy that's ever performed, was ever performed in those days was once a year at For Homecoming, and the musical comedy was, was totally student produced by one of the fraternities, and they alternated from year to year. And my junior year, 
it was our turn. And because of my experience in musical comedy in high school, none in college at that point, I became the director. Because, because of Crane, all the vocal majors want a part. <laughs> Mm -hmm. uh, it's building their resumes, if you would, and there's some very talented people. <laughs> uh, I almost felt like I was in the wrong place. Uh, that the, the talented, you know, did I have an, I was constantly saying to myself as I prepared for this for months, do I have the talent to work with these talented people? They should, I should be, you know, they should be working with me. <laughs> um, and that's when I discovered something that I think has stuck with me my whole life. And that is, if you, can, if you can help others be the best they can be, be the director, and they take the bow, that's such a cool feeling. I can still remember uh, the last night, four nights of performances, houses packed, alumni all over the place, and everybody hugging and and just so happy about the result, which was pretty awesome. Uh, and I'm just standing there watching it. And it's like, yes, I like this. And you were able to kind of orchestrate some future teachable moments and had some really good exhilarating experiences as you moved on in education. And you, you taught for a brief time at Carthage Central School, um, but a long stint at Lowville Academy, your alma mater, in social studies, correct? Correct. But you also had a chance to be a professor and a teacher education coordinator through SUNY Potsdam. So when you're finally in the midst of education as the core of your career, what was it like to teach social studies but also kind of help oversee this program within SUNY Potsdam, to kind of see it from both levels or two different levels of education? I used to say to teachers, teaching is teaching. Whether you're helping your infant learn how to use a spoon or whether you're helping a graduate student who is an English teacher in high school already, um, my job is to recognize their strengths, recognize their challenges, and help them grow, help them become even better than they are already. So, it, so it's really, it was, it's the same thing, it's just that you're approaching it a little differently with that infant in the high chair than you are with a graduate student in English. Do you feel like your method and approach, even though it might be different ages along the way, was it still the same? Yes, it was. Don't tell anybody. That. How would you describe it? <laughs> How would you describe that method? I saw each classroom that I was in as a community. My job, first and foremost, was to strengthen that community so that everyone in the room is helping everyone else. And by, by the same token, not hurting each other. The rule in my confirmation classroom now <laughs> and the rule in my alternative high school classrooms and the rule in my eighth grade classrooms was always the same one rule help don't hurt uh, so my first job is to create a community because together we'll all learn better when we're helping each other and not hurting each other my second job is to get to know each one of those individuals in there and then in the context of what we're learning know where they're at and help them get move along and that can be different for each of the individuals in the room uh, for some it's going to be very challenging to meet the goals that the state or the institutions have established for them for others it's going to be easier and it's an opportunity to push them beyond if you can a story if you will i'll never forget 
uh, I was teaching, I was actually the Sociates coordinator when I was hired at Carthage. And, and one, of the, one of my missions as, as imposed by the Board of Education and the administration was they were trying to make a transition from, with all, for all students to be taking Regents classes, no more non-Regents classes because they felt non-regents classes were watered down and every student needed to have the best quality curriculum. So I went to the 11th grade teachers who were two excellent social studies teachers at Carthage at the end of the first year and said to them, I'd like to do away with, with regents next year in 11th grade. Or excuse me, non-regents. Have everybody in a regents class. They were dead set against it. And finally, one of them was a football coach and a man I really respected. He kind of chuckled and he said, I'll tell you what. He said, next year, I want you to teach two classes with Regents and non-Regents kids mixed. And we'll teach Regents and non-Regents classes. And if your classes do better on the Regents than ours, we'll do it. And the result? Well, I don't, the result is important. But the first day of class and that class the next year, I'm telling the students they're all going to take the Regents at the end of the year. And I tell them all I, all I want from them is that they do their best. And if they follow my guidance, they'll be fine. And if they don't pass the Regents, they'll be fine. It'll be just like taking a non-Regents class. And when I got done with the discussion, there was, there's an 11th grade girl, 16 years old, sitting in the front row with tears coming down her eyes. And everybody left and I asked her, I stopped her at the door and I said her name and I said, what's the problem? And she says, I don't do Regents. I can't do Regents. At the end of the year, after the Regents scores were posted, in those days we posted their grades on the wall in Carthage, I was coming down the hall as she was looking at the grade. Her grade was 70. She passed. She ran down the hall and she jumped on me and hugged me and said, I do Regents. That's what it's all about. You met your wife, Linda, while she was a teacher at South Lewis. We, we actually met in college. Oh, yes, correct. I forgot about uh, that. We were married before she went to work at South Lewis. Mm -hmm. to, to have the same career trajectory or interests, you know, both in education, what was that like to kind of walk that path with Linda together? I think Linda and I were on the same trajectory even before we were married. And, and education was a big part of that. Kids were a big part of that. Linda loved kids, particularly little ones. She taught kindergarten and first grade most of her career. Uh, she did teach some other things, but mostly kindergarten and first grade. And if you talk to people, they would tell you she had this magic with little children. Um, I taught the older ones. Uh, and we, we did a lot of things together for kids. And I, I think she was the sole inspiration for that work. She was the organization for that work. I just kind of followed along, maybe, I'm not sure. Uh, our commitment to, to children extended throughout our lives in many different ways. You credit Linda with a great deal of your community engagement, and you said in our previous conversation that she was the one who would always approach you and say, you know, you should do this, Tom, why don't you come do this with me, to what you alluded to a minute ago. What were one or two of those early examples of her influence and involvement which you also have said was, was pretty contagious. <laughs> As you're saying that, I, I can think of a lot of examples, but the, uh, the most interesting one, I think, was um, the start of youth soccer in Lowville. I, I'd been coaching modified and JV soccer 
from the startup of soccer at Laval, at the Laval School. And a man by the name of John Hayes really started the whole program. He was the varsity coach. Uh, we were pretty awful. But the kids had never played, had no experience in soccer, and we were, were building. Um, at the same time, I, my, our children are probably about age seven, and, seven or eight, and five or six. And of course, my son and I are playing soccer in the backyard all the time. And we're actually um, having a, a social occasion, I don't remember exactly where it was, with the, with the varsity coach and his wife and some other people. And people were saying, you know, it'd be nice if our kids could play Little League soccer, like there's Little League baseball. And, and the varsity coach's reaction was, oh, I got enough to do right now. I can't start a program for kids. And I was having the same reaction. Uh, and of course, Linda, she, she, was a, she was a great skier, but she had no experience in, in team sports whatsoever, ever. Kind of took it on as a project. <laughs> mm. And uh, the first thing she did was um, try to find where there were Little League Soccer. It, it ends up being American Youth Soccer Organization, ASO Soccer. And she finds it in uh, New Hartford, New York. Uh, now, she's, she's originally from Utica, so she was looking at the Utica paper, and they had an article about I think it was three or four hundred kids playing every Sunday in New Hartford from age six to 17. And she said, ah, I got to meet these people. So she, she somehow, I don't know how she did, she found out who, who were the leaders of that program. <laughs> it's a small world because it was a husband and wife team. And the husband was a kid who went to Beaver River when I went to Lowellville and we crossed paths all through high school. I knew him. <laughs> And so that couple connected Linda and me, because I, of course, I go with her, uh, uh, to American Youth Soccer Organization. And in two years, we had 300 kids playing all summer in Lava. With And by the way, Lin Linda just from there uh, talked other people into coming on board and making this happen. And well, by the end of two years, it was happening. Just that example of other folks joining the effort giving of their time to see something like this happen, you know, a really strong youth opportunity. Um, how does that make you feel, as somebody who's from Lewis County, to see some of these other Lewis County families pitching in, seeing a good thing for youth and recreation sports, and seeing what the final product was, to see, you know, ASO really thrive at that time? Yeah, ASO thrives. It spread from Lowellville to St. Lawrence County, Jefferson County, actually western New York, and it was wonderful um, and, 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 and not unusual in the sense that uh, with a little organization, amazing things happen in our, in, in our North Country communities. Uh, it, it's not surprising at all. Um, it happens over and over and over again. There's another part to this story. ASO is a little different organization in that their, their theme was everybody plays, everybody wins. So if a child signed up for ASO, whether he's going to be the future Olympian or if she's going to be playing on one leg with crutches, they're all going to play the same amount of time. And they're all going to play. And they also believe that you play, learn to play soccer by playing soccer. So forget all this practice stuff and just play. Uh, and keep it fair and keep it safe. 
So they had a tradition of tournaments called a soccer fest. And it, ASO was really based in California, figures, in a way. Uh, and uh, a soccer fest, instead of bringing a team to a tournament, you came as an, a family would come with their kids. And right on the spot, they'd be put on a team. And they'd play all day in a tournament with kids from all over California or all over the Western United States, whatever it may be the soccer fest was. Well, in the Northeast, we had a fair amount of ASO regions growing within three or four years. And, uh, and we were at a national convention and, they, and people were saying, you know, it would be nice if you had a soccer fest in the Northeast. And typical Linda, um, we were sitting around saying, oh, how much work would it be to do that? And Linda said, well, let's do it. <laughs> and uh, so she, she got together the leaders of the areas in, in the Northeast and someone made a contact, not Linda, with West Point who thought this was the coolest thing to bring all these kids to West Point to play soccer and see the, see the academy. Uh, so they set up on one field, 15 soccer fields, end to end, parallel. And at the end, far end, there was only room for one more, so we ended up with 15. Uh, they provided medical services, and had the fields ready to go. But then Linda had to figure out, she, of course, Linda's the chairman of this event, <laughs> Linda had to figure out, how do you take 800 kids from the Northeast, have them arrive on Saturday morning at 8 o'clock, have them play four games and be gone by four in the afternoon? And who made that happen? The people from Lowellville. 17 families from Lowellville organized themselves so this tournament happened for three years. It's an incredible story. It was amazing. I thought it was amazing <laughs> as I watched it. <laughs> and, and participated, I'm sure. Well, I was the chief referee, but that's <laughs> just that. <laughs> One of the other things, Tom, that you were involved in at a young age was making the decision to run for the mayor of Lowellville. Um, you served in that capacity for eight years, is that accurate? Seven. Seven. Uh, why did you decide to run for office and what did that experience teach you? I think there were two factors that led to my running for office. Uh, the first one was when I was a senior in high school, I was president of the student council. And there was a tradition that the president of the student council got to be mayor for the day. And so I got out of school for a day and I spent the day with the mayor. And I was so excited to do that because I really didn't understand village government at all. And I loved my community. I loved where I lived. And, uh, and I expected this was just going to be a thrilling day. <laughs> and this is kind of like inspiring from the opposite point of view. That's what it ends up being. <laughs> Uh, the mayor at the time uh, told me to meet him at his office and he, and he at his regular job uh, at nine o'clock in the morning and I sat all day while he did business and I did nothing I did business for his business nothing to do with the village of Lowville and then at 3 30 in the afternoon he loaded me his car and we went to a village board meeting and I understand probably 90% of what happened because they you know the village board, it was four trustees the mayor uh, I still can picture the room Four trustees, no public there. Four trustees, the mayor, the village attorney, who was the budget officer, and the village clerk, taking minutes. They just did routine business like they would do at a meeting. No one told me what, this would, what they were doing or why they were doing it. And it was over with, he said goodbye, and I walked home. And it's funny, but it planted a seed in my mind that there must be something more to this. Uh, and secondly, 
I had a question in my mind. You know, how can people serve the public and then ignore, I'm the public, I'm there. But they ignored me. I just had this picture that that isn't the way local government should work. I, I was granted a leave of absence in 1978, I believe, uh, for two years from my job teaching social studies at Laval Academy to work for the, what was then the temporary Tokyo Commission. They received $600,000 in grants, federal grants, uh, and the money was be to use to help the people of the Tug Hill region, the two parts of the Tug Hill region, the Adams, Lorraine, Rodman area, and the Williamstown Parish, Altmar area, to help them understand better the value of the resources that they lived and worked right beside every day. I don't know if those people learned a lot, but I sure did. <laughs> <laughs> I suddenly realized what I didn't realize, because I had to, when you're teaching, you've got to learn your subject before you can help people learn it. I spent two years at town board meetings, at village board meetings, at planning board meetings, at zoning board meetings. I trained assessors. <laughs> it's pretty amazing because I, I had to train myself. I knew nothing about taxation at the time, but there was something going on in the state where assessors needed training. The Tug Hill Commission needed to provide it. But it was a whole awareness for me of, first of all, the value of this world that we live in in northern New York. I mean, I learned about the aquifer under Tug Hill and how it literally surprised water to most of central New York, yet it could get messed up. Uh, and, I, and, and the amazing thing was the people of Altmar and Williamstown didn't realize they were, they were living on an aquifer. I could go on and on and on. But as I watched local governments work, I just got the bug. I, mm -hmm. I, had, I had to become a part of it, and that's why I ran for mayor. And then seven years serving in that role, what did that experience teach you? I could illustrate it with a number of stories, but uh, if you got time, I got two. Sure. I think it was the second year I was mayor. I was still teaching full-time at Laval Academy, and um, I was done at Tug Hill. And a, a young mom called me. Of course, I'm at the point, I'm 30 years old. She's, she's a little younger than I am, uh, and says, uh, could you come, in, come to my house for coffee someday? Uh, I have a group of women that get together with the children, and we'd like to talk with you. Laval Academy was very generous with my time. I did my job, but they let me use my planning period to be mayor if I needed to. So I, one planning period at 10 in the morning, I just could walk to her house from the school. I walked over to the house and here were three women around the kitchen table and I think six kids, six and under, playing around the house. It was called a play group. And they, uh, they said to me, we're sick of driving to Watertown for our kids to play in a playground. We need one in Lowellville. And we'd like you to make sure that the village builds one. Now, I'm really shortening the story. They weren't that blunt, but that's where we went. And at the end of the meeting, I said to them, it's not going to happen. Uh, the village has too many high priorities and needs that a playground will not come to the top of the list. Uh, it just won't happen. And then I said to them, but if you can make it happen, I'll volunteer to be your grant writer and fundraiser, thinking it would never happen. Really, that's what I was thinking. <laughs> and I walked out the door. Four months later, they had made an arrangement with an architectural firm to meet with the kindergartners at Laval Academy to design a playground. They had persuaded the Lewis County Agriculture Society, if you would, the Lewis County Fair Board, to donate a piece of land on their property for the playground to be built. 
And at their first meeting of interested parents and anybody who wanted to come, they had 300 people ready to volunteer. So they were ready. And I had to write grants. <laughs> <laughs> and one year later, the playground is built. And my wife was a lot involved in this too, but she, and, and they kept track of all the volunteers. 900 volunteers, roughly, from around Lewis County had a piece of building that playground that started in that woman's kitchen about 18 months before. What I learned when I was mayor from experiences like that was the power of community and how what probably I was thinking one stupid idea turned into a community gem. It's still there and kids are still playing on it. Second story, uh, we had a big fire later in time I was mayor, probably, I don't know, I'd have to guess, I don't remember his years exactly, 1981 maybe in Lowville, one of three big fires we've had in downtown Lowville. It wiped out four thriving businesses, Mr. Sub, Montgomery Ward, Goodyear Tire, and Sherwin-Williams. I remember standing with a fireman in the middle of the night as this thing is totally engulfed in flames. Right next to it is an old hotel that's been abandoned for years and people have been bugging me as mayor, they think I should just snap my finger and something would happen with that building. I remember saying to the fire chief, let it burn. <laughs> and they didn't. It was still there. <laughs> uh, so now we have a burnout. And <clears throat> for about a month, it just, the embers and the, and the ash just sits there. And neighbors are complaining. They claim the rats are living there and they're getting in their houses and all these stories that happen that you hear as a mayor. Uh, the, the, the own, by the way, each of the businesses owned their storefront. There was people, by the way, the fire started in the apartments above. And about a month later, uh, I'm having breakfast in a local diner. Uh, so I was teaching, I used to meet with the heads of departments in the village over breakfast in the morning every week. A different person every day. Linda was a very patient woman at the time. I was never home for breakfast. Uh, so we're in the local diner, and sitting across the diner from us, uh, I'm actually with the superintendent of public works, and sitting across the diner from us is a group of men who are there for breakfast every day, uh, and one of them is the owner of a local feed mill, food and grain business, and the other is the owner of a local cement, sand and gravel business. And they just, I remember the head of the sand and gravel business, who was kind of the guy who liked to, you know, dig people, says across the diner with everybody sitting there, so, Mayor, <laughs> when are we going to get, take care of this burnout? And I said, well, the owners just can't get it together. They can't agree on who will take care of it. Two of them didn't want to use their money to even do anything. Three of the four were back in business in other locations. One wanted to go back in business there. He said, well, do you have a plan? And I said, well, I've talked to the county, and they said they'd give us the heavy equipment to to do the job, but the county and the village don't have enough trucks to do it efficiently. And then the guy from the female said, I heard that was the problem, and you can have all my trucks and all his trucks next Monday. In three days, it was cleaned up. They paid their employees. The county brought in the heavy equipment. No cost to the owners, no cost to the community. It was done. Well, there was a cost to the county taxpayers, but done. And the owners gave permission because it didn't cost them anything. So now we have a big burnout in the middle of downtown. <laughs> and people are saying to the village board, what are you going to do? Like the village board 
can do anything, really. And so, at the time, our assemblyman was from Lowellville. And, and I, I, he'd always come home on Fridays, and we'd all congregate in his office, just kind of hearing his stories from Albany. And I don't know how the conversation went up, but the burnout conversation came up. And I remember he said to me, uh, what do you think you need to make something happen here? And it suddenly turned from just our fun Friday conversation to kind of a serious conversation. And I said to him, I don't think there's enough money in the community to really put that back. And no one's coming forward to buy the land and do something with it. He said, we need an incentive, don't we? And I said, yeah. He said, what have you been doing? And I said, well, I've talked to the Tuck Hill Commission and I've done this and I've done that. But I haven't got any good ideas other than I said, People are, I'm, I'm intrigued with what's called an urban development action grant, federal grant. I said, I think we could do some creative things with that to make something happen, but I certainly don't have the skill or knowledge to make it happen. We had the conversation. Life went on. About two weeks later, I get a phone call. I'll never forget this woman's name, and I never met her. <laughs> her name was Gretchen Ralph. She called the school. <laughs> I got the call in the middle of a class. <laughs> the kids are sitting quietly. And, and she says, hello, I'm Gretchen Ralph. You don't know me, but I am Senator DeMano's representative in central and northern New York. And I hear you got a problem, and you're interested in UDAG. And I said, yes. And she said, I'm going to give you the phone number of a man in Plattsburgh. <laughs> His name was Jerry King. And he ran a convenient development center through SUNY Plattsburgh for Clinton County in the areas up in there. And she says, Jerry's already agreed to consult with you. He's <laughs> <laughs> getting everything set up for you. That's right. Um, and I'll have to make this long story short. But it took four years and literally a lot of planning periods from school <laughs> and a lot of nights not home with my kids and my family, but the Lawville Commons was built um, and and at the same time we connected with I connected the village connected with Jerry King a man by the name of Don Lexford that I worked with at the Tug Hill Commission um, at the time he worked in Lowville came over to my house one night sat down at the kitchen table over a cup of coffee and said I got an idea for there and if you can get a UDAG we can make this happen and it did it was very creative the land on which the Lowell Commons is built is owned by the village of Lowell. It was purchased from the UDAG from those owners. Uh, and a third of the construction was paid for by the UDAG. And the rest was done by Exford's team of people who were all partners, a contractor, a lawyer, an architect, and Exford. And then none of them put any of their own money in it. They just contributed what they had, the skill, the time and talent they had, and they built it. And the money came ultimately out of the rental of the property and ultimately the sale of the property back to them. I don't think they made a lot of money. Those stories tie nicely to the question of uh, three tenets that you've shared with me in the past that I, I want you to explain because I think they fit really well in this, within this conversation about giving back to community and community philanthropy and what that means. Um, I'm going to mention each one, but I'd like to have you explain each one too as we go. And I want to start with this quote, everyone is doing the best they can. What does that mean? 
I was, um, I served for nine years as the coordinator, principal of an alternative high school at Carthage High School. It was the most profound educational experience I ever had. And as a part of developing that alternative high school, we wanted a school that was uniquely different than traditional high schools for kids that traditional high school was not working for. Um, and in developing that, we had a team of people, <laughs> five, and we all, each one of us, kind of took a piece of what we did, ultimately were going to put together as this alternative school and ran with it, if you will. We had to go out and learn some stuff, and then we had to bring it back and train the team on how we were going to do X, Y, and Z. My responsibility was management. How are we going to get kids who don't really behave very well in school, many of them, not all of them in the school, already, to find a way to behave well enough to be successful in school and move on in life with some skills and some knowledge and some abilities to be successful. And I did my research with a psychiatrist from California, his name was William Glasser, who had developed a way of doing psychotherapy, he was a psychiatrist, that involved the whole, the whole hospital, if you will, if it was a hospital, in the treatment of the patients with the goal of getting them out of there and had great success. And then there were schools that were taking this and adapting it for the school. And the first thing I learned, I, ultimately I'm I became certified as a, as a glass of reality therapist, a counselor, if you would. And the first thing I had to learn and I had to believe in order to be successful at this was that everyone is always doing the best they can to get their needs met. And if they knew a better way, they'd do it. And sometimes the way they're doing it is hurting themselves and hurting others, but they're doing the best they can. And as a part of that, Glass I actually got to work with Glasser. And Glasser told me that I had, I had to learn to stop being judgmental and just sit with people and listen to them and believe every word because it's their reality. And I, I still have conversations with myself all the time in my work today where I'll say to myself, get over yourself, Tom. You're not doing this for you. You're doing it to help someone else. So stop judging and just listen. Understand and then see if you can help. And it starts with believing everyone's doing the best they can at all times. Next quote, anything I do alone is nothing. It sure is. When I was mayor, we went through a, we did a study to see if we could better serve the people of the Lowville community by merging the town of Lowville and the village of Lowville into one unit. By the way, I was in a hurry to just get it done. And, I, and the town supervisor at the time was a wise sage. His name was Arthur Stanton. And he used to say to me, Tom, good things take time. That was his, one of his sayings. But his second saying that really had an in impact on me was, if this is a good thing, then the community's gonna do it, and all we can do is help. Last quote, you can be powerful, and no one knows you're there. What does that mean? Well, I illustrated that already with the, the musical mm -hmm. at, at SUNY Potsdam. I remember the, f the, uh, the first night, there were 300 kids on all the fields at the Lewis County Fairgrounds, playing soccer. Now, they were playing on fields that my nine-year-old son, 
my seven-year-old daughter and my wife and I had spent all day Sunday lining and making goals out of PVC pipe and putting nets on. We literally worked 12 hours as a family. And we were standing, Linda and I, the kids, our kids were out playing. And Linda was coaching, but she, her game got done early and the other games were still going for whatever reason. And I didn't have any part out there. I wasn't coaching, I wasn't doing anything at the time. And Linda and I are standing on the grandstand at Laval Academy looking out over these fields. And they're having such a good time and families are cheering and there's coaches out there that know nothing about soccer that have learned how to coach soccer. Uh, and it was like, yes, it happened and it's so cool. And no one knew what Linda had done. And in actual fact, there were lots of people who were taking credit and they deserved it because it was a community event. The whole thing involved so many people making so many things happen. The same, by the way, the man who owned the, the Fiend Grain Company that provided the trucks. Mm -hmm. I went to Laval Academy, and of course, at the last minute, like me, I do a lot of things at the last minute. I think it was on Friday afternoon, I had to line the fields on Sunday. <coughs> I went to Laval Academy to get their liming machine. I was a coach there, I knew where it was to borrow it. They gave it to me, and I guess I always assumed I'd use their lime. <laughs> they didn't have any. It was summer, they'd used it all up. And I said to the head custodian, where can I get lime? And he said, well, we buy ours from some distributor in Syracuse or somewhere. And he said, but I, I think farmers use lime in their fields. Why don't you go see Rick Bush, who owned the Laval Feed and Graham. I went to see Rick. Friday afternoon, they're about to close. He's the only one there. All his crew is gone. He says, you need lime for, this, for that new soccer program? I said, yeah. He said, okay. He said, just bring your truck around to the side. He says, how many bags do you think? I said, I don't know. I got to line X number of fields. He said, oh, I, I think I know. And, he, and I come around the side and he comes out with his hand cart and dumps five bags of lime, goes back in, brings out five more. Go back in, brings out five more. We fill my truck. And I said, Rick, you want me to pay me an hour later? He says, I don't want you to pay me ever. And the fields were lined. That's, that's what I'm talking about. You know, no one ever knew Rick did that. But Rick used to, Rick didn't have any kids that played soccer. He had some grandkids eventually. But whenever I saw him, he asked me how it was going. He owned a piece of it. A really unique part of the Lewis County history and support of nonprofit organizations and community projects as a whole is the impact of the Pratt Northam Foundation. And you played an integral role as its executive director for 13 years. Um, what did that experience too and what the foundation does. Um, what did that mean to you and could you even just explain what kind of impact that foundation has had on Lewis County? The foundation serves the communities from Carthage to Boonville. So a little piece of Jefferson County, a little piece of Oneida County and all of Lewis County. I think it's a quiet piece and I think that's just the way the foundation board of directors likes it. I, I can remember the conversations always came up, you know, we need to do more publicity. And then someone else would say, why? We're a private foundation. We have our own funding. We're not trying to raise money. Uh, why do people have to know about us? I did have arguments with the board every once in a while. The people who needed money need to know about us. <laughs> because they didn't very often. The foundation, that foundation had some unique programs. Um, 
probably the most unique is called workership. And I think that illustrates the impact on the community. One of the directors, uh, when, I, when I first was the executive director, the former executive director, we get all, by the workership was a, what we would call an internship program, but not exactly. Students aren't getting credit, but they get a summer job. Uh, and Pratt Northam pays for it with a, with a not-for-profit in those days with a not-for-profit. We had students working on the county highway. We had students working as lifeguards for rec programs, whatever. We didn't have them working for us. We funded the county. They were county employees. Or we funded the Village of Lowville, and they were Village of Lowville employees working in the swim program at Lowville Academy or whatever. They were all over the place, working in libraries, just everywhere. It got to as many as 80 a summer, 80 students could come home, live with their families, have a good job, maybe have a job related to their career plan, uh, and because they can live with their families, maybe have some money left over to use for college expenses when they went back. Uh, the program still is going on. It's been going on for over 30 years. Now I'll get to that director. That, the Pratt Northern Board, on two occasions in the, my 13 years, started thinking about should we doing this or would be a better use of our monies doing something else for the community. And the former director used to get all those students together for a picnic every year. And one of the directors would give a speech. And he always gave the same speech. And he'd say to them, you know, this is an opportunity that we're providing for you, but you've got to decide what you're going to get out of this. And then he'd, he hit, he'd, he'd, he'd compare it to a baseball game. And he'd say, your workership this summer will be a single if you just go to work every day and you take home a check. He said it'd be a double if he goes, they go to work every day, they take home a check, and they do just one thing that makes the community a little better than it was before they had the job. Then he'd say it'd be a triple if, you know, the first two, plus they actually learn something that they could use in their life. And then he said it'd be a grand slam home run if all that happened and they came back home to practice their careers. And this inspired them to do that. You know, over the years, I don't know how many people have stopped me on the street at age 30 or 40 and said, you know, I'm a grand slam. That's pretty cool. That is pretty cool. Your wife, Linda, passed away in 2014. How does the loss of a loved one and in particular a spouse of 43 years, change you, but also change the way in which you give back? I was on a trajectory to change the way I was giving back even before Linda died, in partnership like everything else with her. Linda's last words to me, Linda, Linda had uh, a form of leukemia called MDS. The only cure is a bone marrow transplant. She had a successful transplant, but the donor's bone marrow, when it created in a new immune system, attacked, it, attacked her living cells, and they couldn't reverse it. She was in the hospital for five months. I lived right beside her for five months. Her transplant doctor said to me when I was getting downed after about four months, you need to be hopeful when you're with Linda at all times. I don't want to see you not hopeful. And when it's time for you not to be hopeful, I'll tell you, he told me. He came, in, he came in one morning with the whole team, and the team is around her bed like they were every day for five months. And he goes to me, come with me. 
and we go out in the hall and go to a private room and he said, it's time. She's getting worse and anything that we try now is just going to increase her pain and probably won't work. I think we should stop treatment. I'm not going to finish that part of the story, but we left, we left that room and we walked into the room with all these people around her bed doing nothing, just waiting for us. By the way, Linda hasn't spoken to me at this point in probably a week. She's been in a comatose state, basically. We're walking into the room. Linda sits up in bed and said, I do not want to die. Who will take care of you to me? That's Linda. Her last words, she's worried about me. All those five months in the hospital, she's worried about her community activities. I'm spending literally an hour a day doing emails for her at some point when she can't do them anymore supporting various community activities. I had decided with Linda and with her support that at that point in my life, before she became ill, that I, I was hearing the call to become a deacon in the Catholic Church, to be ordained, and to commit my life to service to the church. Not to the church, to the people of the church. The last three months Linda was in the hospital, my studies started and the church let me do them from the hospital, I missed all my classes. And, well, Linda would want me to do what I'm doing. We did it together, and now I'm doing it alone. But that's okay. She's still with me. Tom, is there a particular example or two of community philanthropy, whether it's in Lowville or Lewis County, and whether you participated in it or not, that has really impressed you? Two examples. Um, one was in the alternative school at Carthage. The students had to do so many hours of community service a week. We actually connected that to graduation requirements. Complex, don't need to know that. There was a freshman and, and one of the members of the team working with Big Brothers Big Sisters in Jefferson County, which isn't there anymore, organized an opportunity for our students to be big brothers and big sisters. And we did it within the, they did it within the school, not we, I was just kind of watching this happen. Uh, they did it within the school. Our high school students would be big brothers and big sisters, the middle stu school students. Big brothers, big sisters provided a social worker who made the matches. Once a month had a community event for all the bigs and all the littles that they sponsored in the school. And, and our students met with their littles two and three and four times a week in school, helped them with homework, played games with them, just got to know them. Well, there's, there's this one girl who was a freshman. She was the only freshman that year volunteered to be a big. Most of the bigs were sophomores, juniors, and seniors. But she really wanted to do this. And she really connected with her little. Well, she, she's the big for that little for the next four years. But when she's a junior, uh, she, the Big Brothers Big Sisters is developing financial difficulties in Jefferson County. And they pull the social worker out of the program and tell us if we can somehow provide the leadership that the social worker did, that they would still sponsor the program. It would be Big Brothers Big Sisters, but they really aren't going to have a hand in it. Other than they would train whoever volunteered from the school, and their picture was some employee of the school would do this. This junior girl volunteered to do it. And she was quite convincing that after she'd done it for two years, she could do this. And she did for the next two years. She made the matches, she worked with the principals and the counselors to make the matches. She did the monthly events, just like the social worker did. She got, even did some fundraising for big brothers and big sisters in the Carthage community. That's an inspiring story at that point. It, 
it, it, it was my, always our vision of what would happen as a result of this volunteer service requirement. I'm not done with the story now, though. This woman's now in her 40s, and she's acknowledged as one of the best school social workers in New York State. It's pretty amazing. I know you're helping other organizations with current community projects. That, that love does not stop. Um, what inspires you these days to get involved and help? Uh, same thing that's always inspired me, uh, and that is uh, <laughs> I like seeing community in action, and I like just being a part of it. I don't have to be in charge. I just like to be a part of it. And I guess it's interesting, but my church work now is, is probably nearly a full-time job. <laughs> uh, so I have limit less time to devote to other community activities. So I've kind of weaved them into my ministry. Um, I've been engaged in hospice, that's another Linda story. I've been involved in hospice patient care for 13 years now. I've been a chaplain for six years. And that's just part of my ministry, but I was doing that before I was a minister, and I'll continue to do it. That's kind of how I, I choose what I do now. It has to, I have to do it well, as best I can. And I see myself more, more as someone who's supporting others in their projects as opposed to taking the lead. Last question to wrap up. How important is philanthropy and giving back to the future of Lewis County? I think it's important to the present, and the present leads to the future. I don't care where the community is. I guess I'll illustrate with two stories. You know, we have this stereotype about urban communities, but I think philanthropy is just as important there. And my definition of philanthropy is simply giving of self for no other reason than to help someone else. And it doesn't have to be financial. In fact, our communities need our time and our talent as much as they need our money. But I think a philanthropist is a person who gives extraordinary, extraordinarily of themselves for no other reason than to build their community. Two stories. First one happened in New York City. It's the night of Linda's death. Now we've been in that hospital for five months and the way they structure, well, this is a city and you think it's very impersonal and there's no philanthropy going on, there's no sense of community. Well, Linda died at one o'clock in the morning roughly um, I let her, I, I didn't tell anyone, they left, they were leaving us alone as I requested, the hospice chaplain at work. I waited about an hour and I went out to the desk and I told her nurse that had been taking care of her for five months, she had the same team for five months, we're family now, that I'm sure Linda has died. And she said she'd be right in. And when she said she'd be right in, that meant in the next five to ten minutes she'd be there. And I went back. Now, before I finish this story, you need to understand that Linda and I had a prayer tradition that we said every night before we went to sleep in our lives. And so when we got to the hospital, we continued it. And when we were first there, it seemed like nurses would come in right when we were praying together. And they would act like we weren't praying. <laughs> They'd go about doing their, their thing. And we'd continue praying. But after about a month, they would come in, notice we were praying, and leave. Or if they weren't real busy, they'd stand and wait, because it took us about 10 minutes. And then after a while, some, of the, some people would ask us about what we were doing, and even join in. Well, the night she died, 
The only question the nurse asked me was, did you do your night prayer with Linda tonight? And I said, no. I just was kind of nervous that she was dying and I didn't do it. And that's all she asked. Said she'd be in in 10 minutes. In 10 minutes, all the professional staff from the floor were standing around Linda's bed saying night. And when they walked in, the nurse said to me, it's time to do night prayer. There was a, there was a, there was a girl, woman in a burqa. I know there was two Jewish doctors. And you felt the strength of community, that people loved you, they cared for you. And Linda, and it was in the middle of New York City where you think it's, everything's impersonal. And, and that's my concept of philanthropy. They were busy people. They had a lot of patients to care for. But they gave, just gave their time for 10 minutes to pray for me, with me and with Linda. I think, I think the best examples of philanthropy that I see in northern New York are those spontaneous events we have to care for somebody in some way. They've happened in my life. They've happened in our, my family's life. But I'm always amazed that when I walk into an American Legion on a Sunday afternoon, when we're having a spontaneous fundraiser for someone who is in the hospital in Utica and the family doesn't have the resources to be going back and forth, and people are dancing and they're singing, but they're just generously giving their time, their talent, and their gifts for no reason other than it's the right thing to do. Tom, I know we covered a lot, but there's more to be added to your story. However, you've given so much to Lowville and Lewis County and the North Country as a whole. Our sincere thanks for taking some time to reflect on your experiences and, and all the efforts that you've been a part of here on the podcast. Thank you for asking me. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Northern New York Community Podcast. Remember, every interview is easy to access and always free, whether it's online or on your mobile device. You can find the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or other podcast platforms when you search for the Northern New York Community Podcast. We also have a website. Listen anytime to other conversations, which also feature interview highlights, transcripts, photo galleries, and much more. Just go to www nnycpodcast.com. Our sincere appreciation to Tom Yowsey for joining us, and thanks to all of you for listening to this edition of the Northern New York Community Podcast. Northern New York Community Podcast, stories from the heart of our community.